Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility. I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative. We started this production to shift the conversation on who is in prison. So for us, that means seeing everyone inside, incarcerated folks, staff, everyone, as full human beings. Too often, we reduce people just to their crime or their job, and then we fail to see everything else that they are and what they could become. So, Denise and Draper, as incarcerated folks... We're talking about this idea within the Colorado Department of Corrections of the shift. What does that mean to you? This shift means that I am uh, given opportunity. It's an opportunity for change, for growth, for amazing things to happen and to come from this and to meet people on a level that we would never be able to meet on that level. Right. For me, you know, it's about shifting the mindset, shifting behavior and shifting outcomes. You know, I think that's very important. So, as I said, part of our work in the shift, and I think that this podcast is a direct representation of it, is to highlight the humans who are working inside of the system. So on the podcast, we're going to be talking to wardens, program managers, staff, in addition to many different incarcerated people. There's so many people that do not go recognized inside the system. And it's not just the offenders. It's the staff. It's the volunteers. It's the families that are affected by prisoners. Like there's a saying, we're all doing time, you know, and uh, there are a lot of people. And I think giving them a space, as you often say, to uh, to be heard and to to get to meet them. Because when you meet a human being, it changes your perspective of them. And we're going to start off with talking to the new executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections, Mr. Dean Williams. Recently appointed uh, and with an amazing background to come into the Colorado Department of Corrections. uh, Yes, he is the man. Let's talk a little bit about what he's coming in with. Right. You know what I found interesting about what he's coming in with is he was the executive director of the downtown soup kitchen. Right. I don't know how big (laughs) the soup kitchen is in Anchorage, Alaska. Right. But I find that interesting. You know, that this man who clearly has a heart to give and heal, you know, is now our executive director. Definitely. So he. Yeah. I just find it's 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 going to be refreshing to see what he brings to this Colorado Department of Corrections to uh, to see where he shifts this. It's, a, you know, big ch- ships turn slow, and I want to see how he can turn this and how quickly he can start turning it. Because some of his ideas, what I've read and what I've seen and what, I've, what we've researched uh, before we've started this process, uh, it's exciting. And I, don't, I can't wait to sit down and talk to him. Right. And the man has a real thick resume, right? You know, commissioner of corrections in Alaska. Um, what else he do? Juvenile Justice Superintendent, Associate Attorney, and Paralegal Assistant for the State of Alaska Department of Law. His per- his perception and perspective that he's gained throughout his his career is absolutely amazing. So to 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 know that he's coming into this department, it's I'm so excited because right. he's going to bring change. And I, I hope that it, there's a saying, "Let go or be dragged." Hopefully, uh, people are going to just jump on board. Let's go talk to Mr. Williams. Today we have with us Executive Director Dean Williams. Welcome. So thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here. So thanks for having me. And Mr. Williams, we love to start off our podcast by sharing um, something that people might be surprised to know about you. I'm curious if there's something that comes to mind when we say, "What might people be 
surprised to know about well, Mr. Williams. Well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm not just saying this because it's Denver University and the arts that, uh, that you're all involved in, but I, you know, I, have, I was an actor. I have been an actor. I have did theater shows. I was actually in a movie that I had speaking lines with John Voighton. Um, and so I've done, I've done one or two films. Um, there's another film I did that was a sort, of a, a, a sort of a B-rated film, but I did a lot of theater shows. I did musical theater uh, in Anchorage. I, it was Cyrano's Playhouse, which was in Anchorage. I did four or five shows um, there where I had lead roles and, and theater shows. And so that's when I had a lot more time on my hands. <laughs> so, uh, but that's, uh, that's a passion of mine, and I, I love the theater. Yeah, immediately when Mr. Williams and I met, we had that... That theater connection, right? It's, yeah, it's a little uh, bit. It's a little bit sick. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a thing. There's a, th- <laughs> there's a thing there. There's a thing that we yeah, all uh, right, subscribe yeah. to. I think. So you've you just you've been on the job for about six months now as the executive director of Department of Corrections in the state of Colorado. So I just kind of am interested of like how has that been? How what what did you walk into? It's. I don't think you're ever fully prepared for a job like this. I never felt like I was prepared for the job when I took over as director or commissioner of Alaska Corrections. And certainly coming to a different state, I had read about uh, the good work that a lot of things that have been done here. And I kind of knew a little bit about the state, but I don't think you're fully, excuse me, prepared for um, what faces you, both the good things, the challenge, I mean, the, the awesome opportunities that exist, uh, the challenge that exists with overseeing a department this size. Um, I feel super blessed um, by not only working for this governor, um, but also the work that's already been done. So it's been, I call it equal amounts of sort of intimidation and fear, um, but at the same time, gratefulness and thankfulness for the fact that I'm here. So there's, there's a lot of things I think about uh, every day when I get up about me leading this department. We, um, we talk a lot in this room about uh, this feeling right now in the department of a shift happening. As we think about sort of this podcast and the role of this podcast, which is to shift the conversation on who is in prison, both incarcerated folks, but also staff, right? Where we shifting the conversation on, on who we think people are here uh, inside. We're wondering about what you think about this paradigm shift shift that's happening within the department. How are you seeing it functioning? Um, how are you feeling it functioning? And why do you think it's important for it to happen now? I think there's a moment in time that you have to take advantage of things that are in front of you. And I think the state, uh, I think Colorado's in a place right now where a lot of um, really good work and dramatic change can happen in the prison system. Um, if I took over another state, and I had looked at other states, to be frank, I had talked to, I won't say what other states, but I had talked to another incoming governor in another state about taking the job there. I knew that if I took the job there, that I was going to be dealing with sort of day-to-day crises and just trying to set the foundation, uh, because that state was in a lot more trouble, I think, um, and had been in the news in a whole bunch of ways that were not very good. Um, and I say that with great support and love to that state, by the way, because I will help and do everything to this day to help them come along. Um, but I knew that when I got the opportunity to lead Colorado Corrections, that we had even, I thought that before I got here, but after six months, I really believe we have that. There's an there's a opportunity amongst the left uh, and the right Uh, I try to make any of the prison reform as apolitical as possible to say if there's one neutral area we can agree upon, dear God, let us agree upon this, that we should get better results from our prison system for the amount of money that we are putting into it. The budget, my budget is approaching approaching $1 billion, $1 billion, and yet there's a return to prison rate of almost 50%. That was true. It was worse in Alaska when I took over. So I think if there is a shift, it's because there's a moment in time when I think better questions are being asked. 
what can we get from this system and what do we need to do? And I think there are some very specific things that do need to be done. It's not my ideas. I'm just ripping them off, quite frankly, from a whole bunch of other people um, and other countries and other states who also have come to the same conclusion, like we need to change the paradigm and we need to change the direction. So I think the shift is now because the moment is now, because I'm here now, this governor is here now, um, this legislature is here now. There is perhaps one area, even amongst the left and the right, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, that we can all agree that something has to change out of the results that we're getting out of this correctional system. So that's why uh, the shift is, is an, it's an opportunity that I think we have to grab. You were speaking about, you know, political views, maybe not directly, you know, between the left and the right. And one thing that everyone can agree upon is that, you know, something needs to change. Right. And that there has to be there has to be, you know, quantifiable results that are positive, you know, more so than they are negative. And one of those I believe one of the reasons is because the public they receive such, you know, negative views, you know, through the media about the department. And so my question to you is, do you have a protocol in place, you know, to inform the public of the direction of the department and, you know, what your outcomes, what you wish your outcomes to be? Well, I think I think the answer is, um, you know, it's slow and steady wins the race. And I'm taking incremental steps and what I think are strategic steps and how I engage the public, how I engage, um, why are we doing this podcast? We're talking about, we're talking about changing the paradigm to say we are going to expect more results. First of all, setting the expectation that things can be different. Many systems, correctional systems around the country, um, I've been here six months, so I'm very gentle about my observations about Colorado, but I can tell you what was in Alaska. 20 years, we spent a lot of money behind the walls on treatment, then no money behind the walls on treatment, then a lot of money back on the walls behind treatment. Guess what was consistent for that 20 years? Nothing changed in recidivism. Nothing. It was over 60% for that entire 20 years. There are other states that um, have come to the same conclusion. So I think behind the walls, what we're doing is critically important in terms of some of the things we'll talk about, what normalization means and what other countries and what other states and what we've, uh, my counterparts have come. But I think part of that is, edu- you're right, is part of it is taking a slow incremental step to say there can be, to set the expectation that there should be different results, that there has to be different results, that we cannot accept the standard of 50% returning to prison that are released out of this system and talk about public safety. If I release a hundred of you, I release several hundred get out every month. And I know that 50%, if I release 200 of you and a hundred, I know we're coming back and I haven't dived down in completely the data, but I can tell you most of you are coming back in the first six months. That's a clue that there's something wrong about the way that we're transitioning you and the way that once you have everything cut from you, what are you going to do the day you hit the door? Well, it's too late then by the time you hit the door. If we haven't done a whole bunch the prior year, not just in terms of classes, but where's your job at before you get out and on some of the things that where I want to go. So first of all, it's, it's making it clear that we can do better, that it can be better. And some of it does involve investment of money. It does, but a lot of it involves changing our minds about what the results should be. So it's not my idea. I just take a look at some of the other countries, the Scandinavian countries. They were where we were at 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They got very strategic and they said, no, what is wrong? Their recidivism rate's now 20%, 25%, half of what ours is. That's a tremendous increase in public safety. That's a tremendous deal to know that now every percent we bring down for people reoffending, public safety in the state goes up. Oh, by the way, the side benefit is our costs go down and we save Coloradans money. So there's a double win on this. But I think, first of all, is setting the expectation that things can and should be different and, and that we're not reversing course, that we are going to get better results than what we're getting right now. 
So can and should be different. So does that, we talk about normalization all the time in this, especially in this room, but it's, it's, it's making its way throughout the, you know, the yards and stuff as what is normalization? And what I want to know is what is your definition of normalization in prison, in prison? So uh, to maybe, let me back up on the question just a little bit, you know, here's what anyone who's done very much work in this area. So when I talk about the Scandinavian countries or Germany or the Netherlands um, or even some of my counterparts who are starting to make changes in North Dakota, Oregon, uh, Washington State, and some of us who I think are forward-leaning, forward-looking about why, where you get success. So this, the Scandinavians and the Norwegians came up where they were, we were at 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They said, there were three things where they landed. One was normalization, two was progression, and three was one they called the import model, which just means bringing people from the outside in. Denver University is an outsider, bringing someone from the outside in to help make changes. So normalization just says conditions behind the walls should be as normal as they could should be on the outside. So things like, do you ever cook your own food? Do you wake up in the morning and have a job that you're supposed to go to? Does everybody behind the walls, unless you're a knucklehead, and when I refer to this, I mean people who are not with the program, right, who are not going to get it, not going to be able to change those people, you know? Right. They spend every day behind the walls, and if that's their choice, that's their choice. But if you're not a knucklehead, and you're like, wow, man, I I screwed up. I'm here. I got 10 years now. I got 20 years. What am I going to do? I think... Uh, you know, what they discovered was is that you should make things as normal as possible. Why? One, it assumes responsibility on your part that you're going to own your time here. And so things like, it sounds small, but, and here's a radical one for you. What if you got to protect your time and you were wearing your own clothes behind the walls? You're doing your own laundry instead of some of you wearing green and some of you wearing yellow in the room, right? Um, and yeah, there's some security issues around that, and we, we, we can deal with that. We'll adjust to that. But the deal is setting the course. So art behind the walls, theater behind the walls, you know, um, anything that's normal on the outside, let's try to figure out if that can be done in incremental ways behind the wall. I'm not going to be able to rebuild all the prisons and make them more um, humane looking because we built, when you look, when I go to some of these prisons, I go, oh, my God you know, driving up to Sterling. I mean, this is a huge place, you know. There are really good things going in behind that walls, but man, that place was built to house, every one of our places looks like it's to house to build the worst of the worst, right? And the, the reality is, is that many of you behind the walls know, have already owned it. You're owning it, right? You're saying, yeah, this is, this is all me. This is all mine. How, what do I do now? And so I want the opportunity for you to say, here's what you do now, is you're having a job behind the walls. You're cooking your own food behind the walls. Uh, You're helping other people out. You're mentoring others behind the walls. You're helping the new guys who come in to get them lined up. That's normalization because that's what we do on the outside. So anything that's on the outside, my goal is to try to make that an opportunity for the inside. Now, that's a journey. And that doesn't mean I flip the switch overnight. But it does mean I set an expectation. And oh, by the way, that's one of my wildly important goals that I'm talking with the governor about tomorrow, by the way. So one of my wildly important goals is normalization behind the walls. And I'm setting up 10, um, um, 10 I, think the, I think my goal is to have 10 normalization efforts um, uh, throughout the system, uh, which we're already starting, by the way. But that could be a variety of things. So whatever you think is normal on the outside, I wonder how that can translate to the inside, and we adopt it. So, um, and here's what we found out, uh, not to jump to hit a question, but here's what the Norwegians found out, and here's what we find out as we start doing this. Um, violence goes down inside the prisons. Things become safer, not only for you, who are being housed here, but for staff, which is critically important to me, and buy-in from staff to say, the reason why we're doing this is going to be better for you not just the people who are being housed here. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all on board with it and, and because I've seen the results. Because, and oh, by the way, um, recidivism goes down. 
because now the cut between what has been your responsibility has not been so dramatically altered. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think it works. And it's not my idea. I didn't come up with it. I'm just ripping it off from other countries and my colleagues around the country who also believe it works. And it's this process, but uh, it's, it's where we're going. As you're talking, I'm noticing all of the um, our incarcerated folks in the room, our team nodding their head, right? They are affirming what you're saying. And I'm curious, Denise and Draper, about um, what you're thinking as you're hearing this. I mean, this is your life. Uh, well, you know, before I get into it, uh, since you're meeting with the governor tomorrow, tell him we said <laughs> hi. <you know? laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, he doesn't know us. But I'll, yeah. I'll do that, Andrew. By the way, Andrew says hi, Governor. The uh, ideas, the uh, you know, the journey, you know, that you're putting the department on. Clearly, we're going to buy in, right? The population, we're going to buy in 100 percent because we can see clearly where it benefits us, right? Um, but I also think that it's important that we highlight that people on the inside do care. You know, we care that just because you're the director or we have a warden in here, there are staff members in here, and we see them as human beings as well, right? Because I think that a lot of times that the public, um, even staff, they don't know that we view them, right? Or we view them in a certain way. But I think that it's important, you know, that we view you as a human being, that we view you as a person, right? That you have feelings, that you have a family, that you have a heart, that you have goals. And the only way that we can achieve that is together. We can't, we can't separate and, and hope, you know, for change. We have to understand that in order for society be, to be safe, in order for us to be safe, in order for us to, you know, become greater than, that we have to work together. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to hire me, you know, or anything like that or any one of us. But it does mean that we have to be invested and we have to buy in just as much as you have. Right. And we have to uphold our end of the bargain. And for those who are incarcerated who will listen to this and who will hear this you know, I challenge them to do that. And I challenge people in Sterling all the time to do that because that's the only way it changes. That's the only way. It has to start at the base level, at the grassroots, so, right? You're singing out of my, my, you're singing right. out of my book too. Right. So I, every time I meet with um, any of you guys who are incarcerated or ladies who are incarcerated, um, I said, look, um, your job, more so perhaps than anyone else, is to help make the shift and to say, yeah, we're going to own it. So every time I meet with people, I said, it's about you changing, helping me change this from inside out. So when I talk from, you know, from when I talk to offenders who are part of a faith program, for example, I'm like, who are you praying for? Are you praying for the staff? Are you telling staff that you're praying for them? Yes or no? Because I want them to know that you're more invested in this shift than they are. When I met with Burl Kane, who changed the Angola prison system in Louisiana, most violent prison system, 6,200 inmates, over 6,000 inmates are in that prison under consent decrees, everything wrong. I had dinner with him about a month and a half ago, two months ago. I said, Burl, what did you do about Angola prison? Horribly violent. Most of the men that are there are never getting out of that prison. 90% will die in Angola prison, 6,000. How can you create hope in a system like that? The first thing I did was I just prayed for wisdom because I had none. I feel like that every day, by the way. Um, The second thing he said, though, is I went to the inmate population and I said, look, you want to change? You want this to be different? You live here? You call this your house? What does it mean you're having your house? What does that mean? That means you're going to be more invested in the change than the staff are. You're going to show them that you're not backing off. That when you hear this and say, yeah, we can be better. We are going to start mentoring others. We are going to assume responsibility for each other. Gangs, subcultures in the prison is unacceptable. Unacceptable to anybody. We're not doing that. We're going to find other ways. So when I look at programs like CrossFit Redemption, which I'm, I'm giving awards out on Saturday here in Denver for or something. Thank you very much. Um, I am... Um, I need them, I need all of you to know. So if there's your other buddies or 
men and women who are listening or incarcerated are hearing me talk about that, especially here uh, in Colorado, I would suggest you have a greater responsibility than what I'm giving on the staff. Because I will figure out, I have good leaders who I don't have to push about where we're going. Warden Long, who runs this facility, he's a great warden. He totally gets why it can be better. He's totally on board. I don't have to convince others of that. Um, But I need to convince you as much, Andrew, and, and the other inmates that are with you to say, you know, there is a moment in time we can't screw this up. We're going to help this director focus a change. That's what Burl did. That's what Burl did with uh, Angola. It wasn't secretive. He started with you guys first. I would challenge you that um, if you wanted to change, then then all the stuff we're talking about, this podcast, all the stuff we're doing, that's on you. Help me out. Right. Be the change, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, no. So does this, just is it safe to say this is what care looks like? I think, yeah. I think caring, though, is the same way that um, my neighbor comes over and says, hey, I'm going to be doing some work. I hope that doesn't bother you. That's caring, right? That's normal. So we talk about normalization. What's normalization like? Well, there's a certain amount of caring I have for all of you in my professional career, in my normal day of life. More people who are closer to me, I care more. I hug some people in my life. Most people I don't, right? But that still doesn't mean I don't care for you. I show care by trying to remember your name, which is difficult, um, but or trying to, um, yeah. Um, the the Nor the Nor I hate to quote the Norwegian all the time, but there's a concept that we haven't started yet, but they call it dyna- You know, um, well, we do it. We just haven't named it, and they call it dynamic security, which all that means is that. Uh, I'm going to be invested in your life as a staff member working here. We've kind of trained the other way around about being careful not to have too much contact with you mm-hmm. because we're worried about you manipulating us and influencing us. And that happens, by the way. It happens in a place. And how does, how does an officer go from being a good guy to trafficking drugs inside prison, by the way? Um, I mean, did that officer plan that that's the way that he was going to start his career? I doubt it. Um, so we train very carefully not to be too close to you because we're worried about how you might, you might utilize that relationship against us. I'm turning that on its head, of course, a little bit. What I'm saying is, is that, Andrew, you and I will not be the same after this podcast because we now have invested a little bit of time into the relationship with each other. It will be different It doesn't mean it's all profound or that, that I'm going to have you over for dinner Probably not, right? But the, <laughs> but but the deal is is that changes interactions and, and human interactions change people, and at the end of the day, I want that I want our officers, and they're already doing it now. This, the wise ones are, but I want it m- utilized more to say I'm going to know Andrew, and there's ways of doing that. You can assign officers to say spend 15 minutes with Andrew every week. That's all. Just 15 minutes. Getting to know Andrew. Does he have kids? Is he married? How'd he get here? What happened, Andrew? Why are you here? What happened to you? You know, having a 15-minute conversation once a week. Be surprised what happens in a prison system when you do that. Violence goes down. Safety improves. Right. It's the return of humanity, right? It's the shifting, it's it's shifting the conversation. Exactly. So it's not, it's not super complicated, um, but you just have to be purposeful. I do want to know, and I'm pretty sure other people want to know. I do too. Is that, <laughs> um, what is the purpose of prison, right? Your opinion, because... I think that the it, it it's become an opinion. At one point in time, maybe it was a concrete, uh, this is prison, this is who it's for, and that's it, right? But as time has evolved and people are people, they change their minds and they become different than what they once were. And 
even people on the inside, you have people in jail, people in prison, incarcerated who believe, you know, I've been incarcerated for the past eight years. I have 20 more years to go. Or I maybe I have one more year to go. And I'm not I'm not the same person who I was. Right. I've demonstrated change. So do I deserve to be locked up now? Do I deserve to be incarcerated? So then the question is, what is prison? What's your definition of prison and who deserves to be in prison after they've expressed change or they've shown change or like a uh, warden long, he always says, you know, uh, maybe it's the crime is too egregious. Maybe the public isn't ready. Maybe someone else isn't ready. So what does that depend on? Well, just your I mean, opinion. No, well, like, yeah, this, I mean, this is a huge, this is a huge <laughs> question. And I, yes. and I, um, I don't want to disenfranchise anybody who's been following the podcast now and say maybe that, you know, maybe Williams isn't nuts after all. Maybe he is. <laughs> um, but you're um, our kind of nuts. Yeah. That's good. But <laughs> no, I, the issue is it's not only what is prison, but what is prison for uh, almost would be not to rephrase yeah. your question, but for me, the whole point, I don't have control over, um, individual control, I can try to influence what I think about the rates of incarceration um, and what I think about that. And should there be other opportunities for diversion, which I do believe that, should there be more ways of keeping people out of prison who really just have really absent a, a heroin addiction, which is a pretty doggone big thing, probably would not be in prison. And maybe they haven't committed a violent crime. Is there a way of avoiding a prison sentence for that person? now that we have them by sort of the short hairs, if you will, to say, um, now now that we have you, go to prison or do this. And here's a six-month or a year plan about how you're going to go into treatment and how you're going to truly start to work yourself off heroin. Because once you've been on heroin, if some of my friends in the room here have been on that road, you know you're never... you're. You're still cutting the cord. It doesn't matter how much. Talk to a long-term, somebody in recovery, long period of time. Still, still cutting the cord from a horrible, horrible addiction that takes over you. There's, you're completely out of control. And if you're in this room and you're one of those folks, um, um, there's no, there's nothing controlling. It's out of control once you're there. But I think so. What's prison for? Um, it, it probably shouldn't be for those people. But I don't have complete control. I can influence. And try to say, you know what, I think we can do better. Because there's no there's nothing good comes from putting a lightweight person in with a bunch of other knuckleheads who maybe aren't there. Now I'm trying to make change prison so we have less knuckleheads, right? And so you're all gonna help me with that. But the reality is that making that cut uh, from everything that's valuable, that everything that is good and holy in your life, including a job, a place to live, family, social connections. Uh, being able to practice your faith freely whenever you want to, all those things, once they're removed from you, um, they, they put you in a really different space, and I don't need to tell you that. Um, so I think, one, what prison is for should be very carefully uh, done, and I, I think it should be for less people than what is currently incarcerated right now. Right. That's, that's a general statement. Um, but I am also would say prison... Uh, what is it for? Um, when you're here, the punishment, and in fact, should be the loss of your freedom. That's the punishment. Prison is, should not be a place of punishment. Um, if you're a knucklehead here and we have to deal with your behavior, then we have to deal with your behavior. That's one thing. But in somewhere along the line, I think the country has taken on the the thought that Prison is a place of punishment. I'll give you one small example. I was back in my hometown. I've mentioned this in one of my interviews. I was in a meeting, community meeting, where a gentleman very earnestly got up and said, you know, director, uh, if you just make those prisons a hellhole, nobody will want to go there. <laughs> and um, here's the problem. And I, I, I can see why he thinks that on one level, not to be too critical, I think a lot of people think that. So I, I want to be kind of kind about if you're thinking that and you're one of those people. But here's the problem. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. You make a prison a hellhole, go look at what happened in some of the California prisons. Horrible violence. The recidivism, the worst in the country. Uh, staff, 
suffered far more violence themselves, inmates getting killed. And so there were prisons that done Pelican Bay. Look at the, look at the history of Pelican Bay, um, where kind of the word was given, you know, it's going to be tougher here. You're going to end up here. Uh, and the rules, maybe if staff don't follow them, that's okay. Um, it's a nightmare. And guess what? People who were in those prison systems come out, and they hate the world more. They hate the rest of us even more. Um, they've got nothing to live for. Um, and so it's, that's the opposite of what it should be. Um, what it should be is that, Andrew, I'm sorry you screwed up, but you did. That's on you. Have your freedom now. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And there be, should be something for you to do. That's the that's the key. So I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. uh, so whose responsibility is that? Is that the department's responsibility to just provide an opportunity, right? Because clearly, it's the individual's responsibility to take it upon themselves to sure. enact change within themselves. But is it the department's responsibility to provide an opportunity? Yeah, I think it's the department's responsibility. Everything we're talking about here in terms of the shift, what does the shift mean? It, the shift is, is that we have to do things differently. And so um, I'm not dragging. I think most of my staff that would hear this would say, yeah, they're ready for it. As I said before, if I took over another state, I probably couldn't even raise this question. But right. this question is, this is an opportune one to say, true. You, Andrew, have to decide whether or not you want to change. Absolutely. Step one. Two, um, is the department giving you an opportunity to say, you're on a different path than the knucklehead. You're on a path that means as you get to the last year or two of your sentence, why shouldn't you be working in the community, working on a job, making, making a prevailing wage, a minimum wage job that a lot of other people in the state don't want to work anyhow? And nothing against migrant workers, by the way, at all. Nothing against that. But you should have a job before you get out. Because now you have shown us that you're serious about who you are. And, oh, by the way, I should be able to test you a little bit with some temptations to say you're going to live in the community. You're going to have more freedoms now. You got it? Right. That's the only way to see if someone's ready, right? You have to allow them the opportunity. Right. And if you do screw up, then you're done. Then right. you're back. I'll give the next guy an opportunity to do the same job. But the point is, is you have to have some money when you get out. You have to have a job line, you know, and not when you hit the door. But I'm saying that's that's the progression model. The progression model says, um, is incarceration more of a legal term or physical location term? Mm. I think it's more of a legal term than a physical location term. So I think incarceration for some people should mean you're never getting out behind the walls. Oh, dear God, you scare us way too much. And you're not changed and you haven't given us any indication that you're going to try. So I'm sorry, every day for you, you're behind the wall. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. But if you are serious about who you are and what you're trying to do, there should, that should mean something. It should have a different trajectory for you. That's what progression model is and that's why I think it's um, a winning strategy. And that actually answers sort of my my question, which was going to be about um, when you think about the best working models for prisons, it sounds like this is sort of um, the vision you have. And I'm also curious if you could touch on what role you think the arts could have in that model and also in sort of normalization as a whole. You briefly talked about it, but I'd love to hear more, especially as an artist. Well, I mean, as a as an old theater geek myself, um <laughs> my my people. I um I just know what that that experience means and, and maybe that's different for different people. Maybe that's music, um poetry, um paint. I mean, I'm, I, I, I couldn't, I'm terrible at stick figures. I mean, you know, but, but maybe that's painting or, or that kind of art. Um, there's a reason why we value that as a society. It changes us. It changes us when you see a really good performance or a really good movie even and ask a deeper question that you weren't even aware that that should be a question that you should ask. Theater and arts do that. Music does that. Um, and I want that behind the walls because that's normal. Those questions should be raised to you through music, through theater, through poetry, through rap, whatever the form might take, um, it should be asking bigger questions. And then what it also does, by the way, frankly, is it 
changes the people who are maybe running the prison too. Mm. When they see you in a different light mm. and they see that there is humanity in you. And most, like I said, most of our staff get it. There's, there's some who don't. They probably won't do well with this transition, but I hope they do. Um, but they, um, and once they realize that it really could be better for them as well, um, so I think, I think arts uh, are huge and it's a, it's a big component and the reason why one of those 10 wildly important goals and the, one of my wildly important goals with the 10 normalization things are maybe some facilities are, you know, and murals aren't everything, into, but there's something. It's a start. It's not the end all, by the way. There's a lot of prisons that have murals that aren't, are in pretty tough shape. So that I'm, not, I'm not saying we put up a mural where we won at all, but those kind of efforts are, are items I expect now, and I expect us moving forward. And I expect engagement with those of you in custody about what those things should be. So it doesn't have to be the same for every prison, for Sterling, Lyman, you know, DRDC. It could be different. Um, I want it to be different because I want you all to talk to Warden Long about what that means here. And so this podcast is kind of one of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I hate to check one off his list already, <laughs> but, but that's one of them. And that, um, but I expect that in all the facilities and I expect each facility to figure out what that means for them. So because you speak about the changes that you plan to implement, right? Um, and that that sounds great, and I'm with you. Everybody in this room Whatever. is with you, right? We're we're behind you 100. percent um, The operation on the ground level, however, seems to be sticky, right? So, what what are your plans for that? You know, just base ground level. I'm back to that again. Grassroots base, right? Because that's where you're going to have to affect that change. Well, a sticky, I suppose, is a good word. Um, well, if it's on the inside, like department on the ground level, that means the way that we train, that way that means that expectation of my um, director of prisons, his deputies, my wardens, to say, why are we doing normalization? And to see those changes take place at the root level and to also talk to staff and have my wardens and others and me engage with staff. You know, we're making this change um, to improve your life if you work for us, right? I mean, so you know that. That's one of the reasons why we're making the change, um, to keep people on the job, because I inherited 25% turnover of staff every year. 25% were leaving of correctional officer staff. That's, that's crazy. Um, so I, um, I think it's doing lots of ground, you know, lots of meetings, lots of things with them. Um, back to the ground level, how do you make this shift outside? Politically, um, socially, um, I just had a discussion with uh, Colorado College yesterday about uh, an event we're going to do in the fall about airing a film. And by the way, if you're listening to this, there's a great film. You want to go like, what's this whole thing between Norway and us? There's a film called um, Breaking the Cycle. That's kind of a comparison of Holden Prison and Attica Prison, and it's done very well. It's 50 minutes, and um, it raises better questions about why uh, Norway went through those changes. Engage, again, going back and engaging with the public through all these community events, uh, this podcast, interviews that I do all the time about the effort, um, it's one increment at a time. We're not going to win the whole state here uh, by tomorrow, um, but we can show incremental steps and bring people along. Uh, and I'm hoping that I can line up a trip to Norway um, this fall or spring, I have some foundations who might be interested in taking some of us government people, and I have universities and others who've already expressed an interest in coming along to help carry the banner. And the banner is better results through a reformed prison system. Um, and that's good for everybody, no matter where you think you're at on the political spectrum. So, um, you know, there's a strategy on that, and um, it's one step at a time. 
Are you, you talked about diversion as being like a maybe an, a, no, a notion to use. You've also talked about these work programs, but are you willing to put pressure as the executive director on the <clears throat> Department <throat> of Corrections on other state departments at the diversion level to help make this change happen, this shift continue to happen, so people aren't car- incarcerated, at least in the physical sense? I I told the um, um, I, I, maybe I, I forget when I talked to the. The governor, maybe the uh, governor's office or some of the staff about my interest in diversion when really directly it doesn't impact me. Um, it does impact me in terms of overall prison population, right? But um, um, there's a committee uh, through legislation that was, excuse me, passed um, this last session. And uh, one of them was to do what to do about the prison population and how do we, what should we do about that? Um, and diversion um, clearly is one of the avenues for controlling the prison population because right now we're at 99.5% occupancy. We're at the brim. And there's no more room. Could you put pressure on like DHS, Department of Human Services, well, to get more involved? I don't have to put too much pressure on because Michelle Barnes, who runs the DHS, is a phenomenal leader, a co- has become a close friend of mine. Relationships help in these issues, by the way, but <laughs> Michelle Barnes is awesome. And I'm helping her on things that are of interest to her. And so um, I was at a juvenile facility, for example, just recently um, because I just wanted to pop in to one of her juvenile facilities. I said, Michelle, I'm stopping in your juvenile facility. Is that okay? She says, I wish you would. And so when I when we talk about diversion and the public safety committee, which is also under the you know which is part of the governor's effort to about um, um, I might be saying the wrong name, but it, it's Stan Hilke, director of public safety. And there's a new number of us on the cabinet as well as other major leaders about what to do about diversion or pretrial efforts. Why should I care about pretrial efforts? Because a lot of the prison population, well, not in the prison, but in the jail population, are pretrial people who can't pay a $500 bail or bond. Well, I have 500 bucks. It's going to be easier for the me than Denise. You, I have 500 bucks. You're going to sit in jail until your case comes up. Is that fair? Is that right? Because I got 500 bucks, you don't. Let's say our crimes are equally the same, which they are in many cases. But if I have a little bit more money, I get out. You don't, you stay in. And I lose my job. And I you lose, lose my housing. Job. Exactly. So um, even that pretrial effort, is one that's cleared on the radar, and I know that uh, Director Hilke is even before this administration was something that he's working with the criminal justice uh, meeting, which I have a meeting this week on it. But a lot of that work out of that group, of the criminal, uh, the crime commission, was uh, working on pretrial and trying to get it. Didn't pass this year, um, but it's queued up. It's an important effort because. Um, if you can't go back to your job on Monday morning, you should go back to your job. So a lot of those proof trial and diversion efforts, um, yeah, I'm I'm speaking into them. Right. But there's a, there are readily there are, there's agencies and the environment I think remains ripe for um, making changes in that area too. So you just spoke about you know cultivating relationships <clears throat> with your counterparts uh, throughout you know the state, and you are. Governor Polis appointee. And so operating on that level, you know, politics are involved. I'm not going to ask you about your political views, um, but because politics are involved, the changes that you implement, how are they susceptible to change? Oh, they're quite susceptible to change um, without a trajectory that is sustainable, that is incremental. Um, I'm worried about a bridge too far um, scenario. Not that I don't want that bridge, but I think a lot of this is strategic and incremental. And that sounds like uh, bureaucratic talk for, well, maybe we'll get there, maybe we don't. I'm not saying that. I want this. And it's not just I want this, but I think as Coloradans here about where this goes, they should demand more, that we're going to do something about the return to prison rate that we are not going to accept it.
I just wanted to know, like you talked briefly about the, the hemp farm project and it was a pilot program. How important are those programs and how, how are you going to get more community support? Well, we, um, um, that was a, maybe a more difficult environment in terms of starting the program that we should, we should have signed on to. Um, but it was, I had a, a good warden out there, warden long might know him it's, it's, his, our, br- it's his brother his our brother's other, cooler our, than he is our <laughs> other favorite oh our other favorite warden long we have two yeah. favorite warden so, longs so um, um no he 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 talked to that farmer and said hey you know we're starting this pilot program would you be interested And one thing came to another and i met with community members i i met with the law enforcement i talked to them about it it still was a lot of i still was dealing with a fair amount of a misinformation about what we were doing. Uh, and so we walked through it. Um, I've paused it. I'm not doing it now at that program, but the 12 guys who were working there did great. They all, I don't know what they, they all made about a thousand bucks off of the effort. That's a thousand dollars more they have upon release than what they had without that program. So was it a, it was it a failure? No, I knew it was going to be tough, but there are other counties who have already approached me, have approached us who have said, you know, we get it. And we have a whole reentry coalition here yes. who's been waiting for this moment. We have employers. We have the faith community who are all coming together to say, we want those people back here because we know. First of all, if, um, if you're of the faith, which I am, um, this is a calling. This is, this is who we're supposed to be about. And, you know, it was redemption opportunities for people. And so... Um, a shout out to all of my faith partners, you know, faith people uh, who are mm-hmm. doing this, who are doing all these things. We got God behind bars. We have churches behind, you know, that's normal. Yeah. That's a normalized event, right? Yeah. It's church behind the walls. Operated by people coming from the outside. That's import. That's another hit. That's a that's a double, you know, that's a mm-hmm. double whammy mm-hmm. I've got in terms of, of, of how that should be. So inviting all of them in. So they, there are counties who want to put people back to work. When I say, hey, you know, I have nonviolent people. Last six months, the year of their sentence, boy, they need a job. And boy, are they excited they want. And they would rather do their last year with you than their last year with us. Right. And that's awesome. And they all start, like, you know, jumping up. This is what we've been waiting for. So I have some counties. I'm not naming them now. uh, But I have some counties who I'm meeting with over the course of the next few months who are waiting, eagerly awaiting my arrival to say, how do we start? And I've hired another person, by the way. There is money in the budget for this. By the way, the governor, to his credit, <laughs> said, yeah, let's run with this. Let's put a little money in this. And so I have some money over the next two years to start this program. So I have a coordinator whose only job is to find those locations. So I kind of, I did the, the Sterling Hemp Farm thing kind of on a little bit. Um, wasn't as planned out as probably we should have had it. But I had a very excited warden who wanted to take a chance on it. And it was sensible. And it went okay. Um, we paused it because we, I wanted to give the community a time to settle down a little bit. But there are other locations who want to embrace this. So I don't have to convince those counties that this nice. is the right course. Thank you. We just have a, a few more questions for you. We want to make sure we respect your time. But I, this one, you know, is... I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I mean, I think we're all curious, but I'm definitely asking this as a, an artist, as an educator, as someone who works um, with and, and for the DOC, um, and sort of the balancing act of walking the line between your own personal beliefs and um, your political and work beliefs, right? So how do you, what does that balance look like for you? How do you hold all of those things at once? The governor asked me one of the first questions um, when I was looking at this job uh, in Boulder, he, he, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he basically asked me sort of, why, why are you here? Like, why? Right. Um, <laughs> and I said, um, because I think I'm on a mission. And maybe it's with you, Governor, but maybe it's with somebody else too. And I think God has a plan in my life about what that means. Mm. So my personal, I mean, if you hear read anything about me, I mean, this just oozes out of me because I can't help it, quite frankly, because it is who I am. I'm, 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 I'm a follower. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Um, and so that, that, that's, that's who I am. Uh, and I approach all of the things in my life from that perspective. And oh, by the way, um, 
I'm a fundamentally flawed human being. And mm-hmm. so there are other reasons why I'm sort of in this business is because I believe in redemption. I believe in second chances. That doesn't mean you, uh, the knuckleheads who refuse that they think there's anything wrong with them. Well, guess what? Redemption is probably not going to work for them too well either. And, and by the way, the prison experience should be different for them. So I think that guides my 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 professional, my, my guidance. I mean, and oh, by the way, being probably being a Christian is probably one of the most misunderstood things there is because you think mm-hmm. it's somehow we're like selling something to you. Like it's, we're like soliciting you. Like we're really worried like every day, oh, I wonder if I can get somebody else to be a Christian, <laughs> right? And that's not the calling. That's not the deal. I'm not selling anything. It's an invitation. I didn't invite the higher power God invited, not not me. I mean, I, my job is to say, hey, not for nothing, tell you my story, tell you who I am, tell you what changed my life 20 years ago as an adult man. I kind of felt like the grit of life in my teeth. Now, I didn't end up in prison, um, but I felt the grit of life of a man who is now approaching his 40s, burning through one marriage, you know, having, you know, feeling unfulfilled. And um, so I didn't end up in prison. But it wasn't so good. It was not good. And so I don't, when I talk to my graduation class or I talk to all of you, I'm not, I'm not selling anything on anything. Does it inform me? Of course it does. I can't leave that at the door. I'm, kind of, I'm a different man in front of you than I'm a different man when I head out. Uh, that's, that's no kind of leader. And uh, that's no kind of person I want to be more importantly. And that's not maybe the more ultimate thing. That's not what I'm called to. So I tell people whether or not you're working for the department or you're behind the walls, you're a leader one way or another, and you have something to offer, not only something to offer, but you have something to change. So believe me, um, I feel like I'm the most unqualified at times, and I feel like I'm perhaps the most unlikely director because that was not my plan. At another podcast, I'll tell you what got me to be the commissioner of corrections in Alaska, and that's mm-hmm. probably another 30-minute deal, but it was not my choice. It was not the direction I was going. It is not the job I wanted, but circumstances opened a door, and I felt a conviction about that it was up to me to step into the gap, even though I felt completely unqualified to do it. Um, and I, I sort of challenge staff all the time to say, if you feel, feel like you're qualified for the job, good. Good on you. At least you're wise enough to realize you don't mm-hmm. have it all together. Mm-hmm. Now we have some place to start. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, I, don't find, I don't find that balance that difficult. I, don't, I would never push or sell who I am or what I am in terms of my faith. I respect, would respect every other faith. I invite, invite the Christian community in. I would invite other faiths in if they approached me. Um, there's not a challenge to that. I don't feel challenged by that. I, I, I want, um, those, are, those are personal choices, but they inform us, and they inform who we are. I don't think you can deny that. That would be, that'd be nuts, just denying that I have a left arm and a right arm. It's just me now. I, yeah, I really I appreciate hearing that because we talk about this a lot. I mean, one of the first questions I tend to get when I walk into a prison is, "Why are you doing this?" Right? Like, That's a fair you know, question. Yeah, and and I actually have a very similar response to you, which is that um, it doesn't feel like an option. It feels like a conviction. It feels like a calling, and it feels like a a mission, um, and that it is. I think very spiritual work, whether or not it's religious or not, there is something incredibly powerful about it. And um, so it's really nice to hear from you because uh, I, I feel very similarly. Um, my last question for you is in 15 years from now, um, what do you hope our prison system looks like? Well, I, I'm really mindful of, of, trajectory and I'm really mindful of where we go if I'm not here uh, where we go if Governor Polis isn't here um, and this doesn't become flesh in the pan issue and so a lot of the prior questions you asked me about well how do you change the on the ground level floor you know Andrews you're asking about earlier um, I take all those things really seriously because um, um, a lot of that is setting a course 
that here's where the ship is sailing. Now, that doesn't mean we can't take a detour. Let's avoid the rocks. Let's going, but we're going here. Um, and we're not going to stay on the island we were on, that we have another place to go. And I want it to be different. So when I come back in 15 years and I, you know, do we have a reunion? I don't know. We should plan that now. I've made like one high school reunion in my entire <laughs> life. Not So I'm not very reliable in this regard. But... Um, We'll hold you to it. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, but, but in 15 years, it should be different, and the trajectory should be different. Norway, Germany, those countries haven't said, well, we got it all together now. We got it all figured out. They're incredibly self-critical and self-evaluating and reflective about it. The problems with prison systems and closed systems sometimes, we become afraid of a question of what's not working and why is it not working. And so I would... Um, I'm hoping I leave a department that is reflective, that is open to a whole bunch of other people coming and saying, hey, I got an idea. Now, some of those ideas, you may say, that's nuts. We're not, we're not doing that. But, but I, want to be, I want reflection on that. I want, I want, so I have some ideas about where I think we should be in a couple of years. I should walk in. I should see different environments. I should see interactions, and they're occurring now, by the way, because we have really good staff who have been waiting for, you know, I watch staff all the time interact with inmate population, by the way. It's my little secret thing to say. How are they they handling you? What did they say to you? Was it respectful? Was it good? A lot of that occurs in this department. But um, I want, I want a course to say this is kind of where we're going to, that this is going to mean something no matter who's in the job. And if you've read any of these sort of leadership books, um, one that comes to mind, Good to Great, um, it's interesting because the most permanent changes are not based upon the leader. They're based upon a whole bunch of other people who are helping that leader sort of get there. So if something happens to the leader, um, even though there's a part of us maybe like, wow, they're, they're never going to be as good as when I was there, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that should be nonsense. I mean, it's a part of me. I Sort of, sort of admits that a little bit, right? Well, I hope they really miss me. But, <laughs> I mean, I just started the job, so let's be careful. But, um, but, um, but that's not the goal. The goal is Warden Long, <laughs> Warden Long's brother, that other Warden Long, um, you know, Terry Jaquis, another warden, uh, a whole bunch of other wardens who I'm going to leave names out. Don't be insulted, you guys. Um, but... Um, who are now carrying on the mission. And for when the next governor comes in, if that's eight years or four, whatever that might be, that they go, hey, this is going in such a great course. Who would screw that up? Mm. Who would mess that up? And the results are going to be different. So I don't have to argue. We have to go back over this and say, you want to go back to 50% recidivism rate? Who wants to do that? So maybe that'll change under my tenure. Maybe it won't. Um, I hope it does, but I'm hoping here long enough to see it. But the the more important part is that there's a trajectory. I don't have to worry about snapback, and that means having people around me who are coming up. That means you, Andrew, and you, Denise, um, carrying on and figuring out how there's going to be legacy inside uh, the, the inmate population to say this is going to be different and what that should look like, and then challenging wardens to say, hey, warden, here's how I think we can take back some more ground together. This is how we do this together. This is how I'm going to help you take a little bit more ground back together on this. I just did that this morning, by the way. That, that's my man. That is my man. No, exactly. And so, um, and and then raising those questions and then having to squirm a little bit. And go, oh, is that, well, that's different. Well, yeah, maybe it is different. Well, we haven't done it that way. Well, maybe we, yeah, maybe we should do it that way. That's a great conversation. So if I know that's going on and I know that, that those sort of things are that, then um, I don't have to worry about uh, this snapback occurring or because the trajectory is set and we all know this is a better, we're leaving the desert. This is a better location. And um, my job is to help convince everybody and your job, quite frankly, is to help convince everybody that that destination is one where we all win We all win.
you've said it a, a little bit throughout the whole podcast if it's peppered in and out, but why do you support this podcast? Well, it's a normal, the easy, the easiest one is it's a normalized <laughs> thing. Podcasts are a normal part of society outside, so I want it on the inside. Um, the other more um, uh, under the radar reason, but now I'm telling about it, is um, is that you all will change the system in a way that I can't. You all will impact um, um, people's opinions and thoughts about what it means to be living in here more than I can. Um, you have a you have an important role. You have an important voice uh, about why answering the question why why we're changing why we're going to go do the hard work instead of just doing the same stuff over again. Um, so you have a role. So part of it is I'm trying to encourage you to say you have a role and you have a purpose and you have a, you have a job and not to back off from it. So we're going to just end with, um, first of all, I just want to say how incredibly grateful we are to you, Mr. Williams, for being with us today. We have been so looking forward to this and I feel personally just feel so lucky to have you as our leader. Um, I think, I, I don't want to speak for everyone in the room, but I think that based on the energy in the room and all, the head nodding, we just are so grateful for, for you, for your vision and for the way you're leading us. Um, thank you. We have a we have a resident poet in the room who, um, as we do our interviews, he sits and he actually writes a poem for each interview um, and that we share at the end of the interview. And he's written one for this conversation that I'd like to share with you briefly. Oh, okay. okay. Sure. It's called The Shift. William S. Graham. Thank you, resident poet. <laughs> the Shift. We are all born unprepared, calling for help, only to discover life is real for us all standing tall on the shoulders of change, telling ourselves, we can do better. We have to do better. We must. Sometimes results seem strange. We look to others in light of hope, trying to cope with our pain. From the outside in, we find no one's perfect. Everyone has sinned. So we say again, the shift is not only a title, it is a human thing, asking who is in prison, who wants to change the shift? Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Williams. Thanks so much. Books and news stories that were referenced by Mr. Williams in this episode are included in the show notes and on the resources page of our website. This is within.com. Next time on Within. I was looking at a picture the other day. And the picture is with myself and two of my friends, right? And and we were laughing in the picture, and they're dead, and I'm in prison. We're memories. None of us are alive. We're all somebody else's memory. We wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado. So we started a newsletter. It's called Reverberations from Within. If you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it, visit our website at thisiswithin.com. If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DUPI founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard. A special thanks to... 
Dean Williams and the executive team of the Colorado Department of Corrections, Deputy Director Matt Hansen, Wardens Ryan and Jeff Long, Major Fowler, Lieutenant Nygaard, and all of the staff at the Denver Reception Diagnostic Center and Sterling Correctional Facility, the Public Information Officer for the DOC, Annie Skinner, and the Reverberations from Within newsletter team and all of our DU Prison Arts Initiative students across the state of Colorado. Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com.